It's not going to work, is it? I want it to go up. Right. Good morning. Good morning. Ah, well, uh, fantastic. It was great to do that song with Pete, wasn't it? Absolutely brilliant. I think I spied about everybody getting it wrong at some stage. Yeah? It was particularly when we'd swapped over. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, but it's great to be here as a, a family together. Um, I'm going to be uh, talking from Acts uh, the, our series in Acts, Acts 4, verse 32 to verse 37, which will come up uh, in a minute. Um, but I wanted to start off um, by just getting you to think for a minute. And I've got a very deep uh, theological question for you to start. And the question is this. How do you tame a lion? I said it'd be deep and theological. How do you tame a lion? How do lion tamers tame lions? How do they get them to do what they want them to do at the circus? With a chair. I'll come back to that in a minute. Because you would think, wouldn't you, usually lion tamers, apparently, I've got to say I'm not a great expert, they have a huge whip which they can use if they feel a bit concerned. They've got that voice, the lion voice. I don't know what a lion voice is. To encourage them to go in the right place. Sometimes, apparently, they have a pistol on their hip just in case it all goes wrong. But what they actually use is a chair. So why do they use a chair? Honestly, this has some relevance to what I'm going to say. Why do they use a chair? Both of those are good ideas, but none of them are true. It makes them look larger. Yes, no, that's not true. But it is a great idea. The idea is this, if you look at this chair, and if you were a lion, which I'm sure you're not, but if you were a lion, you would see that there are four things heading towards you, wouldn't you? And lions focus on one thing. So if you have four things looking at a lion, the lion then goes, which do I look at? And it kind of freezes the lion and calms it down. That's completely ruined it now. <laughs> the idea of what, uh, the reason why I was, gonna, I was trying to say that is because what I want to talk about this morning is I wanted to focus on one thing and one thing only. Because when you look at a passage, and we'll read the passage in a minute, boy, can your mind go in different directions. What about that? How does that fit in? What about that? What about this? And I want to focus on one thing so that we don't freeze with the amazing richness of Scripture that we're going to look at. I don't know if we can have the uh, Scripture up. Um, and why don't we read it together? Uh, it's always good to read Scripture together. Uh, it helps us to think about it, to get into our minds. Uh, so let's uh, read it, starting at verse 32, going off to verse 37. Now, come on in. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, 
For as many as there were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed. Thus, Joseph, who was called by the apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and bought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now you may know this scripture, you may also know what's coming next about Ananias and Sapphira. I want to just thank very much those who are organizing this that I had this passage and not the next one because that certainly does cause some conundrum. But what I want to do today is just to focus on one element of it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're a gracious God. And Lord, we just pray this morning you would come to speak to us. Lord, I pray that you'd take my words and make them yours. Lord, you'd encourage us, you'd bless us. Lord, you'd draw us on as a family. Lord, if there are people, Lord, or maybe not part of us, guests, Lord, will you bless them as well. Lord Jesus, with the encouragement of your word and by your spirit. Amen. Okay. So, here's my one aim today. That we look at this passage to help us to be more like Jesus. That's good, isn't it? But through the lens of Barnabas. Because as I looked at this passage, God began to speak to me, encourage me to look at the life of Barnabas. Who was he? Because this passage seems to finish on Barnabas, doesn't it? Some great ideas, but it finishes on Barnabas. So just looking at uh, verse 36 and 37, just to focus on that part, it says this, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. I just want to look, just first of all, at the idea of the son of encouragement. I don't know about you, but I find it bizarre, this changing of names. Don't you? And we're going to go through today a number of people whose names changed. They had this, and then they had that. We've got Daniel. Do you remember Daniel's changed name? Belshazzar, Belshazzar. I think I'd stay with Daniel in terms of simplicity, but there we go. There was a reason for that at the time. There are other people in the Bible. Saul became Paul, didn't he? And lots of other people who changed their name. And it happened at this stage, the apostles changed the name from Joseph. Now, Joseph's not a bad name, is it? Joseph's not a bad biblical name. Joseph of Arimathea, Joseph and Mary, and probably many more. But actually, he was then changed to the name Barnabas. Joseph, why, why would that happen? Why would they do that? Was it just a trend? Everybody changes their name. What am I going to be called today? It happened to me, actually. I was Robert to my parents. I still am Robert when I'm in trouble, got to be honest, to my mum. <laughs> Sometimes to Andrew as well. But anyway, let's move on. Um, <laughs> I was Robert all the way through until I went to secondary school. And I don't know about, you know about secondary school, my secondary school, things changed instantly. And within about a minute, I was changed to Bob. And that stuck all the way through with everybody except my parents, of course. Actually, that for me, that coincided with the time that I gave my life to Jesus. 
because actually it was within about two or three months of going to secondary school, having come from a completely atheistic family, that I then went to my first Christian meeting ever. Somebody told me about the good news of Jesus. I thought, this is too good to be true. This is amazing, hearing about the gospel. Nothing I need to do, just need to receive the salvation that is due to me, and then I have eternal life with him. Amazing. So my life was transformed at that time. I didn't quite know what a transformation was. I didn't understand it all, but I knew something happened. So actually, in my heart, I wasn't too bothered that my name was changed from Robert to Bob. But here, we change from Joseph to Barnabas. You notice, or if read on in the New Testament, the word Joseph doesn't happen anymore. It's always Barnabas. Joseph, it's a great name. It means he will add addition, blessing. Isn't that fantastic? That's our heart as a church, isn't it? That God will add to us. He will bless us. And actually at this time of the New Testament, when we've just seen the outpouring of the Spirit, 3,000 come to Jesus in one day, many people getting saved, he will add. It's a great name to have, isn't it? It really is prophetic about what was happening at the time. So I think as a church, we'd be very happy with he will add. Jesus will add. Our Lord God will add. But actually it changed to Barnabas. And that was very significant. We know here it says Barnabas, son of encouragement. A comforter. Consolation. Somebody who would appeal on your behalf. That's what he was called in that moment. We're going to spend a little bit of time just looking at the character of Barnabas through Acts, because that's what I feel God's saying. That's the one focus this morning, just looking at him. And what does it say to us about how we can be more like Jesus? A native of Cyprus. That's interesting, because it means he was not from around there. He was what we would call an immigrant, somebody who came in from Cyprus. He would have looked different. It would have seemed different. It probably had a different accent. But certainly, as we look through Scripture, Barnabas would be that kind of guy you want around. It's just nice when he's around. He would be the person who would just say one or two things, make you feel a little bit better. He'd be that encourager, that supporter. The person who thinks, do you know what? When, when Barnabas is around, I just feel a bit safer. I just feel a bit more encouraged. I feel a bit more blessed. It's just good to have him around. And so I want to focus a little bit on this native of Cyprus, who was obviously an immigrant, but somebody who was called an encourager, a blesser. Okay, so that's the first part. Okay, let's keep moving on with this, because number two, he was a radical giver. And as I said, when we when we look at this passage, there is this whole concept here of them keeping all the money together, isn't it? Everybody was looked after. Nobody suffered. The poor didn't suffer. And people were selling land and houses. But the verses here actually pick out this one man. There was something significant about the land, I think, that he sold. Because we picked out this one. It didn't say, well, look, Peter sold this. John sold that. Joseph sold this. Um, Different people sold different things. You know, there were 500 people who sold various things to help the communal pot. No, what it said was it gave the example of Barnabas. This was a significant thing 
that he did. Maybe it was significant for him. I don't know. I once uh, had the great privilege of traveling with Max, uh, who many of you will know, uh, in Vietnam. Max, who uh, went out from Herne Bay a large number of years ago now, um, is now back in this country, but had an a, a amazing ministry in Vietnam and in China, really setting up all sorts of uh, opportunities to bless the poor, um, coffee shops, um, all sorts of things she did. And, and I spent some time with her, and I met uh, a Vietnamese uh, man called Min. I don't know when one or two of you may have heard Min's story, but he was an amazing young man. And I met him in Ho Chi Minh City, and I think his story went something like this, that he went to Ho Chi Minh City, he got saved, he met his wife, um, and he began to feel a calling to, to look after uh, children who had no parents. He wanted to build an orphanage. He wanted to have an orphanage that would look after in his own town, in his own country, should I say, in his own country. And actually, as he thought about it, he realized that he had some inherited land back in his village where he'd come from. And he used that land to build an orphanage. You see, that land was supposed to be his inheritance. That was, if you like, his future. That was where he should go back to and have a family. And actually, he should go back to that land and did it, but he didn't. He gave it in his heart for an orphanage. His, his house became an orphanage, and he, I can remember him building it. The next time I went to see him, he built a little bit more because he wanted to have that orphanage. And I wonder whether it was a little bit like that. That actually, maybe in Cyprus, maybe in Judea, I don't know, but there was a significant portion, an inheritance that he had. And actually, what that did with him is it broke the dependence on money. We can be so sometimes dependent on money. I'm just going to keep that money in the bank for a rainy day. Because I know there might be a time that I need it. And sometimes we put our dependence, our insurance, our hope in that, rather than putting it in Jesus. This here, I think, broke something in Barnabas. And I'll show you why as we go through. This does raise one other question that I'll just take as a side one. Did the early Christian community, did they become like a hippie commune? Is that what they became? You know, or a communist state where if nobody owned anything, it was all the part of the state. Is that what happened to the early Christians? Because you can almost read it like that, can't you? There was definitely great giving, great service to one another. Is that what happened? And I don't think it was, and I'll show you why. Um, if you look at Acts 12.12, you don't have to look it up. Um, talking of Peter, it says, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. Notice everybody has to have two names, but there we go. Whose other name was Mark, and many were gathered together and were praying. He went to the house of Mary. So that lady, who would have been there at the beginning, still retained some of her own possessions. So it wasn't a hippie commune, but there was that sense of radical giving that was going on at the time. Gosh, what a challenge. I find it very interesting looking at the story of Barnabas. I'm going to very slightly get out of um, uh, the, the history of the story. I'm going to jump to Acts 11 because it's really interesting to see what Barnabas was doing then. In Acts 11 verse 29 to 30, it says this, 
So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers in Judea. So at that time, Barnabas was at Antioch, and the Antioch Christians said, oh, well, we've got to send some relief to what was happening in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Well, it would be Barnabas, wouldn't it? Because he's the one you know was trustworthy about money. You knew that he was the trustworthy one. So, of course, he's the obvious one. He's the one that everybody would trust with that money. He'd have the responsibility to take it, to give it to the right person, to do it in the right way. So it's interesting, that link, that was a significant change for him. He was showing his trustworthiness at the beginning. And that was blessing as it went through. Okay, so we've had a look a little bit about him being an encourager, son of encouragement. A little bit look about him being a radical giver and how that changed his mentality. And it changed the way people looked at him. And thirdly, I'm going to have a look at him that he was the father of encouragement. And in this, I'm just going to have a, do a kind of quick history of Barnabas through a number of verses in Acts. So we hear about Barnabas, first of all, in this passage in Acts 4. He then next comes in uh, in Acts 11, some of which I've, I've already read to you. Let me just read uh, some verses from Acts 11, verse 20 to 24. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that's a kind of uh, Greek-thinking group, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Brilliant. Brilliant. Great number turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas, of course, Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with a steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. And then perhaps the most famous thing we know about Barnabas. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. So this is the, the kind of follow-on about Barnabas's story. There's been a bit of a gap in Acts, been a, been, been a gap of time. But when this revival, amazing things, broke, up in, broke out in Antioch, notice it was men of Cyprus and Cyrene who were the people who, who were instigating it. They thought, let's send Barnabas, somebody who can encourage them, exhort them, can teach them in the way to go. Maybe those who... who who perhaps are not quite understanding the gospel. He's the one that can explain it to them. He can exhort them and encourage them. He's the one that has the character that when they see him, they think, do you know what? Being a Christian is a great thing to be. It's interesting, isn't it, that character? For he was a good man. Not just good, but he was full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. And great many were added to the Lord. He was somebody whose character shone out so that he could encourage others. Barnabas, the Cypriot. Okay. Moving on to the end, so that famous part. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. 
Interesting. So he'd been there. He'd started off in Jerusalem. He'd gone to Antioch. He'd encouraged them there. And he then went to Tarsus. So he decided, do you know what? I remember that man. Remember, okay, he was called Saul and now called Paul. Changed the name, okay? But that, that man, I, I think he's the one I need to encourage next. I think that's what I need to do. I get a feeling that's what I need to do because there's something about Paul that I need to encourage. So he went, and the next few chapters are all about what Paul and Barnabas do together. I'll let you read through them. But they do things together. They speak the word of God. They see some amazing healings. And they work together. You can imagine Barnabas encouraging Paul, training him blessing him. And then uh, in Acts 13 verse 43, in, I'm going to say it wrong, Pisidia, got to be really careful with that name, Pisidia, um, Acts 13 verse 43, something changes. You see, all the way through, it's been Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas and Paul went here. Barnabas and Paul went here. And in Acts 13, it changes around. It was Paul and Barnabas. Interesting. How did he feel? Suddenly, Paul was the one who they were talking about first. And then sometimes it changes back again in Scripture and it says Barnabas and Paul. But there's also a a, a very interesting part in Acts 14. It says in Lystra, after a dramatic healing, Acts 14 verse 12, it said Barnabas, they called Zeus. So these people who'd, who'd suddenly got really interested, got, got saved by, the, uh, by the, uh, what they were saying, said, ah, oh, we'll call Barnabas Zeus, the Greek god. I, I mean, very strange thing to do. And Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. So things had turned around, didn't they? Things had really turned around because it was now Paul who was the chief speaker. In fact, it was him who's the leader. Now, you notice this, that Barnabas was feeling he was taking a step back and allowing Paul to take a step forward. He was being a father of encouragement. He was encouraging others. That must have hurt a little bit. And then in Acts 14, verse 19, because of this dramatic healing, what happens? Paul gets stoned, and they leave him for dead. I could read through all these scriptures, but it'd take a long time. Paul gets stoned, and they leave him. They don't stone Barnabas. I wonder what his emotions were at that time. This person that I've encouraged, I've, I've, for years I've gone round with, he's kind of slightly, he's, he's, he's kind of become the, the authority figure now, the one people see, and now they've stoned him. They didn't stone me, but actually my friend's being hurt. What, what am I going to do? I, I want to encourage him, I want to be with him. And they left him for dead. You can imagine Barnabas, can't you? Coming to see him for the first time with the stones and the injuries that Paul had. And what did he do? He swept him up. He encouraged him. He was the one that was there. That picked him up with some other friends, but he picked him up and he took him to Derby. It's always interesting relationships between people, isn't it? How people get on and how people change over the years. Because you'll know and I'll know that even as Christians, we don't always agree, do we? We may try to agree with each other. We may try not to fall out, but we don't always agree. And in Acts 15, verse 39, there was a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. And it was about taking John, who was also called Mark, 
remember, everybody seems to have these two names, John, who was also called Mark, with them. So they were going on another journey, and they disagreed about whether to take Mark with them. I'm not going to go into the detail of that, but they had a disagreement. Sad that that happened, that it wasn't just a difference of opinion, but it actually was a disagreement, and it meant that they went their separate ways. So this man, who we can begin to put on a pedestal, can't we? We see was very, very human. Who knows who was right? In the, it doesn't matter, does it? And actually, perhaps the sad thing on Barnabas's point of view is we don't hear about Barnabas again. We just hear about Paul. Maybe actually he'd done his job. Maybe he'd done the encouragement. Maybe he'd been that father of encouragement and, and, and maybe that was the right thing. But it is sad, isn't it, when Christians disagree. And we believe that, that essentially we shouldn't. We should be able to, as Christians, get on together to work through things together, to say, do you know what? Jesus is the one I love. He's the one. He's more important than these slight disagreements we have. But there are times, and we should, and, and I understand it because we're passionate, aren't we, about the gospel. We're passionate about Jesus. We're passionate about him making a difference and doing things right. So I genuinely understand it. Okay, so that's my uh, story of Barnabas for today. And the question is, what do we learn from it? What do we learn from it? Because quite often, and often in the Old Testament and here as well, the, the, the Bible doesn't actually say, you should then do this, does it? Acts doesn't say, and therefore do likewise. There are some parts that it does, but it doesn't always. So um, are there some people here going to help me now? Would anybody be prepared to help me a bit? Uh, what I'd like to do is have three people come up the front, I warn you first, as three Barnabases. I know, you're looking at me thinking, what is he doing? Come on, you knew something would happen. Come on, you did. Okay, would three people like just to come forward and I'm going to ask each one a question. I don't know if this mic can be on. If, if you don't come, I'm, I'll take the, the other one. If you don't come, I'm going to pick on you. Wonderful. Barnabas number one. Thank you, April. All right, I'm trying to encourage you. Thank you, I need it. Brilliant. Do we have another? Ah, fantastic. Three Barnabases. Isn't that wonderful? Three Barnabases. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a question. And the question is this. What lessons do you think we can take from the life of Barnabas? Now, I've got a, I've got a little slide later where I can say what I think I've learned from it. And so I'm giving a little minute to think. Definitely April came first. What lessons do you think we can learn that um when it's when the very first thing that you you read about him giving the field and then we know that ananas and sapphira are next he there was obviously something very different about him giving it he was giving it sincerely from the heart and it was costly yeah ananias and sapphira had a backup plan you know it, it, it's a bit like the lady with the the, the coins you know, it was costly for her, yes. and I think it was costly for him for all sorts of reasons. And so that's one of the things that I, I think. It's easy to say, well, I've given. I was thinking about Derek and I sponsor children for compassion, and I was thinking, am I satisfied with that, or could I do more? And that, that's mm. what made me think, what's costly? Fantastic. It is, it, it's a real challenge, isn't it? Costly giving. It, it gave an inheritance. That's quite something, isn't it? That's, oh, that hurts. Margaret? Sorry. 
What have I found? Well, yes. I think it's not just your money, it's your time. I mean, it's costly sometimes to do things. We think, oh, I'd rather perhaps do something else or I've got this stuff to do. But so I think that he gave his time. He went and found Saul. I mean, he didn't have to do that. And I think we can all be like that, that if someone's missing, we can encourage them by going and finding them and being just helping them to see that they are an encouragement. I always think that when people are here, that encourages me. And if they're not there, then I think, where are they? So I think we can be an encouragement with our time as well. Fantastic. Thank you. Barbie, you look like you've, you're I've thinking... Say, really. Well, you're, you had you're more time to think than the others, I yeah, suppose. Yeah. I think a lot of it is um, being obedient to what God puts on your heart. Yeah. If he wants you to give to something or somebody and you actually look in your, your money and you think, well, can I do it? It's, it's a case of obedience. Uh, just do it. If you know it's the Lord, you, you will do it. And sometimes encouraging somebody who doesn't really want to listen is very hard. It can almost smack you in the face. But to still encourage them, if they accept it or receive it or not, but just to go up and encourage them what God says about them, and pray that they will believe that, that how much God loves them. Fantastic. Thank you very much. You want to give a nice round of applause to these. Thank you very much for coming up. I would have been very lonely by myself if you hadn't. That's brilliant. So as I was uh, praying, and you'll see elements of what those three ladies have said in what I'm going to do, but these are the lessons that I felt... God speaking to me about Barnabas's life. So number one, let's not be a lover of money. I talked about that, that sometimes we can say, because we have that, we, we have our security. Because we have that pot, because we have that retirement fund, because we have that, we can feel secure. And actually, our security needs to be in Jesus. And sometimes that does mean that it's, it's a key to the human heart, isn't it? You find those that give, uh, their lives are transformed because they're, not, they're no longer run by their wallet. Remember Matthew 6, verse 24, says this, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Our attitude to money is really significant. And maybe that's helpful for one or two. And I know... Um, that was brought out by April as well. Number one. Number two, humility. In my heart, there was an element of humility in Barnabas's life. The element of that people say, oh, Barnabas would be the one to take the money. And, oh, now it's Paul who's the speaker. To be able to make yourself less at times and encourage somebody else forward can be really hard. I don't know whether you've ever been found yourself in a position, maybe it's at work or in a group, where you seem to be the favoured one. You get everything you want for a while. <laughs> it's fantastic, isn't it? My boss thinks I'm the best. Oh, it's absolutely brilliant. And then a year later, you realise it's somebody else. And it's really hard, that sense of humility. That's really, really hard. James 4 verse 10 says, Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Humble yourself before the Lord, 
and he will exalt you. Um, one of the uh, most difficult times in my life and uh, in Andrew's life, um, I'm just going to talk about now because I, I think it's quite relevant here. It's obviously something that, that still touches us uh, emotionally, but um, probably about, I would say, well, a number of years ago now, I would say 18, 20 years ago, we felt a real call to Shanghai in China. Absolute call. And we prayed with people and people encouraged us. We talked to the church, which was City Church at the time, and they said, oh, we really sense what you're doing there. It seems a really good thing to do. And we prayed and we prayed and, and you know, people gave lots of encouragement and we thought, do you know what, um, we'll go out there. So I went out there and spent some time with Rob Glover. Again, one or two of you know him, works with Care for Children, um, helping uh, Chinese children get into foster care. And it's now in... Um, mushrooms since then in terms of missionary and I really we really felt you know what we want to be there we want to be there, out there doing that and so we prayed and uh, we thought the way of doing that was me getting a job out there so I looked in the TES and there, there it was the job in China so we thought well you know we may get it we're not but if this is God we'll get there and so we applied and we got it I got a really good job in China in Shanghai right next to what it was how amazing you can tell this is not all going to be amazing all the way through. Can't you? you can just see one or two looking at me. And so we got to the end of term. We said goodbye to everybody. We um, rented out our house to Tom Shaw. Some of you will know, and Kev Jones. Um, so it's a way back now. And um, then about two weeks into the summer holiday, we, uh, while we're living um, on a, a campsite in a temporary accommodation, uh, the phone call came through. He said, oh, we're terribly sorry, but the, the school hasn't got its license for next year. But we said, you know what? We'll keep praying. And people kept supporting us. And we went through that. And it wasn't until Christmas that uh, they let us go. We did everything we possibly could do, we thought, at the time. But we talked to the church that we felt we were going out. And suddenly, nothing happened. Had we got it wrong? What had happened? And I, I have to be honest, even now, I cannot answer the question. I cannot answer the why. But I can tell you one thing, and that is the lesson that we learned from it. Um, I've had the great uh, privilege of spending time with Steph Liston, um, who's one of the apostolic uh, people uh, in relational mission, um, to do with one or two questions he wants to ask me for no particular reason to do with uh, eldership and stuff. So I spent a lot of time with him, and, I, and he has a way of just pulling out your history. And he said, oh, what about this? What about that? And, and then pulled out the Shanghai story. And I said, oh, we learned a lot from it. And he said, well, what did you learn? I went, what did I learn? And I thought, do you know what? We felt humbled. In fact, we probably felt more humiliated than humbled, but we felt humbled before God. And I think it changed us inside now, I'm not, I can't say why we had all that encouragement and it didn't happen, but I knew that one of the lessons that God wanted to teach us through that was a sense of being humble before him and trusting him when things go right and when things go wrong, that he's still the same God, that he's still faithful, even though it doesn't feel like it. He's still with you. He still loves you, even if your dream has closed suddenly, even if you feel that pain. And I think, do you know, sometimes I think we need to, uh, as a, a community, just get that perspective that we are here for him. It's not about our plans, it's his plans. And we want to fit in with those. We want to be people who are 
in his slipstream doing what he wants. We don't want it to be, oh, look what I've done. Because it's so close sometimes, isn't it? It's so close. I've got a really challenging quote here from Tozer. You might want to think about it and chew over it, but it's certainly something that's been challenging me. A.W. Tozer in God's Pursuit of Man says this. He says, We need to feel and know that we are but dust and ashes and that God is the disposer of the destinies of men. That's not to say that he's not kind and he's not loving and he's not gracious, but actually we're in the hands of an amazing God who's about an amazing work. And it's his destiny that he calls us to as a church and individually. Okay, so don't be a lover of money. Be humble. The gospel, number three, the gospel demands radical living. And again, we heard that from one of the testimonies today, wasn't it? It's about that radical decision to do things for Jesus. It's about putting ourselves in places where we feel uncomfortable. I sometimes wonder when people look at me out of church, do they see somebody and say, oh, that's just somebody who's just part of the community just one of those teachers, same as all the rest? Or do they see me as something different? Because if we've been radically saved, if our, if our lives have been changed by the death and resurrection of Jesus, we should look different to the world, shouldn't we? We shouldn't always be exactly the same. Yes, we should be in the world, but our lives should reflect something that's radically different. People should feel, if you like, slightly uncomfortable around us because they're things that they hold dear that we firmly disagree with. We might do that lovingly and caringly, but actually we want to live differently. We want to look. Our culture, our heart wants to be different. I was thinking this um, in terms of parenting. And uh, please just come with me a little bit on this. You know, to be uh, our heart for our two boys as they were growing up was that they would both... uh, have a strong faith in Jesus. That, that, that somehow as we prayed them and encouraged them, and I know as parents we all have that, don't we? Um, and sometimes it happens, sometimes we, we, none of us know why, sometimes. Um, but talking to teenagers, it's interesting what they say about why they want to follow Jesus or why they struggle at different times. And I know our boys really struggle. Of course, it's all about praying with them. It's all about encouraging them. It's all about reading the Bible with them. It's giving them time, allowing them to freedom to grow and develop and to, to, to um, have that responsibility away from us when they're at the right age. But also, it's about our lives. Because actually, if we say to our children, look, we have radically changed and they don't see us as any different, to the person next door, then they go, really? Is that God real? Is that God real? Because if, it, if you, if my mum and dad, who I know so well, are saying, look, I've been radically changed by Jesus. It's completely different. I live in a different kingdom now with different values, yet they see me doing exactly the same person as the neighbour next door. They're saying, oh, I don't know. This Jesus they're talking about, I'm not sure it's true. And I think that has a real effect. So I just want to encourage you as parents, to live those, they might be, might be making decisions that you think, oh, is that going to be very easy for them? But actually, them seeing your faith, them saying, do you know, I think this is what God's saying and doing it, that makes a huge difference. That means more than comfort, ease, even, dare I say it, sometimes the consistency of friendships. Have I come through clearly on that one? Is that all right? Everybody's looking very quiet. 
Oh, I've offended too many. Bless you. Right, number four. And again, we, I think we, we heard it in the um, three ladies coming up and talking. It's about being an encourager. Barnabas was that encourager, wasn't he? 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says this, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And I think that's a nice phrase for us. Just as you are doing, be those that build up one another and encourage one another. It's so easy to just start to moan and to think, oh, so easy, isn't it? It's so easy. And I know, I know, I know in myself, it's so easy just to fall into that. But let's be encouragers of one another. Let's be those who speak those words of encouragement. Let's just go back to the, the idea of Barnabas. Encouragement, comfort, consolation, appealing for somebody. Those that support one another in a way that maybe the world wouldn't. That encourage one another that maybe the world wouldn't. And let's keep doing that. Do you know, my, um, it's not been an easy week. I'm not moaning about it. Whoop. Uh, it's not been an easy week for me at work. But one person said to me, and I can't give the context. One person said, oh, do you know what? I overheard this said about something. And I just thought this one word would be good for you. Oh, that one word. Just one word got me smiling. I told everybody about it. Do you know what they said? Oh, it's brilliant. It's made me feel so different. That one word from somebody who just overheard somebody else saying something. I thought you should know. That kind of encouragement makes such, such a difference. Okay, Albert Schweitzer says this. I don't know what your destiny will be, but one thing I know. The ones among you who will be really happy are those who have sought and found how to serve. We'll be really happy are those who sought and found how to serve. How can we serve one another in terms of encouragement? Do you know, as the church grows, and it's great to see new faces and new people coming in, and I've got absolute confidence that he will add, the Joseph mindset will be with us. We want to be those who don't just add, we don't just grow, but we develop in terms of that encouragement, that safe place, that place where we can all flourish and help each other flourish thank you very much I will hand over to Mick and Pete no Pete I have no idea where to go from there but I'll leave that to your wisdom <laughs>